0: I mentioned in the announcements that I was at a funeral yesterday, and I saw some people that I hadn't seen in probably going on 20 years, maybe a little more than 20 years, and we had a wonderful time reconnecting with many of them. But I always have to steel myself when I'm going to one of these events, when I'll be interacting with people that used to know me when I was, oh, Xander running around the church, pretty much. Um, I have to steal myself for one comment in particular. What do you think I hear most when I go to an event where people knew me uh, when I was a child here at Straight Gate? You look so much like your dad. You look so much like your dad. Now, you know. Some of you know. Now look, I I just need to say it. I'm not offended by it. Um, I understand it, though a part of me wants to say, I, I am 38 now. Okay, I, I, you can't even reach up to pat me on the head. Okay, like I, 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 I have a part of that, but I understand. I understand. I'm not offended. If you said that to me in the past, I promise I'm not offended at all. In, in, in some cases, of course, I'm flattered because I love my father and, and, and certainly honor his memory. Uh, but I get that. You you're, you're look so much like your dad. You're, you're a chip off the old block. And some of you are commenting on Xander and Lars's curse as well in that way. You, you look like a chip off the old block. And what I... It's appropriate that we say this on Father's Day because some of you are chips off the old block too. And you should acknowledge that. It's okay. It's okay to look like your dad. The idea of who we resemble is important, not just physically, not just genealogically. It's important spiritually. We understand from Scripture that ultimately what God is doing in the world is having sent his Son into the world, he is seeking to bring human beings, his creation, to look like his Son, to be a chip off the old block, to look like their father In heaven to resemble him. Now, some of you may remember the quote that is attributed to Gandhi that is often used as a cudgel against Christians. Have you ever heard this? Gandhi was reported to have said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians look so unlike your Christ. Have you ever heard that before? I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians look so unlike your Christ. Now, we should be careful with that because, frankly, Gandhi did not know the Christ of the Bible. Any Jesus to him was a a Jesus of his own making, not truly Jesus as he is faithfully represented to us in the Bible. So while we should not necessarily just embrace that, we should recognize the truth that it's saying that we as Christians are not merely to reflect the name of Christ. We are to reflect the image of Christ, the likeness of Christ. And this is a concept that is mostly foreign to Americans today, even American Christians. My friend James Dickey sent me this this morning, and apparently recently, or there was some poll, that showed that 7 out of 10 Americans identify as Christians. Seven out of ten Americans identify as Christians. Guess how many say that they seek to emulate Christ in their daily conduct and actions? Six out of 100. Seven out of ten say, I'm a Christian. Six out of 100 say, that means, or... In my life, I seek to emulate Christ in the way that he lives. Is it any wonder that someone could say, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians? Now, I start here because we, this morning, are talking about Christ. In the passage we're going to look at together as we work sequentially through the Gospel of Mark here, Jesus is challenging the scribes about who Christ is. Now you need to understand something about what the word Christ really means. To the Jew, Christ was simply a synonym of an Old Testament word, Messiah. Those two both meant anointed. What does it mean when someone is anointed? If any of you watched the Uh, the uh, elevation of of Prince Charles to King Charles recently in England across the pond? He was anointed. He was anointed with oil. What is the picture of being anointed? It, It means you are set apart. You are special. You are different. Kings get anointed. Prophets in the Old Testament got anointed. High priests got anointed. So what did it mean to the faithful Jew to say, the Messiah is the anointed one. He is the chosen one of God to deliver his people. Oh, the, the Jew of Jesus' day was looking for that Messiah, the Christ. So this question of, of who the Christ is, what is he going to be like, was really what Jesus was driving home here. And remember here that leading up to this passage, Jesus has been the one on trial. The religious leaders of the day have been trying to discredit him. Oh, his judicial trial will come later. But his religious trial, that was now. He had entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, sending a clear signal that I am identifying myself as the chosen king over God's kingdom. The crowds were chanting Hosanna to the son of David. That was no mistake either. The son of David was a title for the Messiah, for the king. The religious leaders of that day didn't like it. They came to Jesus and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Coming into the temple and cleaning out the temple like that. Who's the one who's allowing you to do this? They didn't think that he was the Messiah, and they wanted to discredit him. They wanted to show that he was not, in fact, the Christ. The Messiah. And so they begin trying to tangle him in his words. They try to get him in trouble with the Romans. They try to get in trouble with the common people. They try to trip him up doctrinally to show he doesn't really know his Old Testament. He doesn't really understand the the doctrine of resurrection. He can't be possibly the Christ. But yet this is the background. This is is the undercurrent that is going on right now. Is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, or is he not? In fact, if you were to fast forward just a couple chapters to Mark chapter 14, we'll get there, God willing, eventually. The high priest, ultimately, at Jesus' legal trial, comes out and asks him, he says, Are you the Christ the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God, are you the Christ? He asked him directly. That was the debate. Who is this man? But what I want you to notice as we come into this section of Mark chapter 12 is that from Jesus being on trial, suddenly the tables are all turned and it's the scribes who are on trial the religious leaders who are on trial. They've been asking Jesus hard questions and he's swatting them away and giving them answers that they can't impeach. And now suddenly Jesus turns the tables and said, "Now I got a question for all of you. What's this about the Christ? What's the deal with this Christ that you have been waiting for and teaching about for all these years?" And then if you'll notice with me in verse Number 38, he begins with withering condemnation of these same scribes. He is sitting in judgment of them. He is sitting in judgment of the religious leaders of his day. He is sitting in judgment not only of them, but of the entire religious system of their day that had become so perverted from God's initial intent. And he ultimately says of them that these leaders shall receive greater damnation. Greater judgment, greater condemnation from God. He is sitting in judgment of them as not only the prosecutor, but as the ultimate judge. And He is telling everyone that they have come up wanting. The title of the message this morning is The Scribes on Trial. The Scribes on Trial. And we're going to look at it in particular on two different dimensions. Not only Christ's condemnation of them, but also a contrast that I can't help but see in this passage. And one that I think is so fitting for Father's Day. And it's this. These scribes had been waiting for the Christ to show up on the scene. They had been in trying to interpret the Old Testament passages. They had been intending to see when he finally might appear. And when he came, they missed him. And do you know in part why they missed him? Because they looked so little like him. Oh, these scribes were waiting for a Christ. And in their conduct, they looked nothing like him. When he showed up, I want to start first of all by looking at what I'm going to call the correction. The correction. And you can find this here in Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, and verse number 35. If you have your Bibles with us this morning, I invite you to look at it together as we seek to draw out the word for ourselves. Notice with me in verse 35. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? How are these scribes saying that Christ is David's son? The Messiah is going to be the descendant of of David, not his physical son, like a, a, a father has a, a, a direct descendant. How, but how are they going to say that, that, that the son of the Christ who is coming is going to come as the descendant in the line of David? Notice what he says. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David, therefore, himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? Now, we need to step back from this a little bit. I don't know that this is going to be something we readily catch on to. But before we dive into the substance of this, I just wanted you to know one thing that we might ordinarily gloss over if we're reading too quickly. Will you notice with me what He says, For David himself said by the Holy Ghost. Now, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. Now, you can make a note of this in your notes if you want to go back and look at it later. I would encourage you to do that. You can turn there now and take a look at one of the most famous Messianic passages in all the Bible. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. The early church fathers understood the connection between the promise in Psalm 110, the prophecy looking ahead to Jesus, and they applied it looking back at who Jesus was and at his resurrection and his exaltation by God. They knew that this was talking about Jesus, but Jesus himself knew it was talking about him. He is quoting it. And listen to what he says. David himself said by the Holy Ghost. Don't miss that truth there, friends. Have you ever been tempted to kind of cut out the Old Testament of your Bible? And say, let's focus on the New Testament. I understand the New Testament a lot better than I understand the Old Testament. Friends, that's not Jesus' view. Jesus said that this messianic psalm was David speaking. And don't miss that because there would be no end of the number of modern critics who said, David didn't write Psalm 110. That was someone else. My friend, take it up with Jesus. Jesus said, David said. And how did David say this? How did he write this? Notice what Jesus says, by the Holy Spirit. This is getting into one of the doctrines that we stand on here at this church. That the Bible is the inspired word of God. That when David wrote the Psalms, God was inspiring him. Now notice there are two very important things to take from this, just by way of footnote. When we say that God inspired people to write the Bible. We don't mean that they were like robots, just hearing an audible voice and just transcribing it. We don't mean that God was just simply taking a hold of their hand and and forcing it to write the words. We don't mean that at all. Jesus said David himself Said. What does that mean? It, mean? it was David actually communicating something. It was God was using David's personality. He was using David's gifts. He was using David's base of knowledge. He was using David's person. Not a robot. But yet, David spoke by whom? By the Holy Spirit. Spirit, The Holy Spirit was speaking his words, inspiring and directing and superintending David's words so that it could be said. Are they the words of David? Yes, they are. Are they the words of God? Yes, they are. They are both. We have to understand that view of what we mean when we say the scripture is inspired. It is God-breathed. There was a human channel, fully human with all his gifts and characteristics. And there was a God by his spirit directing and superintending and overseeing the words that were written. Don't miss that little idea, Jesus teaching us himself about the inspiration of the Old Testament of our Bible. But now notice here, Jesus is really diving into a riddle. You'd probably call it that today, a riddle. He's just speaking very popularly. He's saying to this crowd of people that are in front of him, How can you say that David is the, I'm sorry, that the Christ, the Messiah, is the descendant of David when David calls him Lord? Now, let's look at this very quickly, shall we? Will you notice with me here in verse 36? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. You say, what on earth is going on here? If you were to look at Psalm 110, you would see again that phrase, the Lord. The Hebrew word that is used there is the word from which we get Jehovah today. It's speaking of God, the elevated one, the everlasting one. So David is speaking of God. The Lord said to my Lord. Now the second time in the Hebrew that, that, that David uses the word Lord, it's not Jehovah. It's Adonai. It's a different word. It is a term not referring strictly only to Jehovah God. It is a term of respect. It is a term of acknowledgement of an elevated one of Lord, like Master. The Lord, God, said to my Lord, sit in this elevated, this exalted place on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, do you know the Jews in Jesus' day, they would have agreed that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm, that he was speaking of the Messiah, that he was speaking of the Christ. They would have understood that. They were waiting for the Christ to come. And now Jesus turns it around on them and says, you agree that this is a a, a psalm about the Messiah? Well, then explain this. You say that he's the son of David. How can he be, then, the Lord of David? You say, I don't understand. Well, think about it this way. If David was saying that that the Messiah was his Lord, my Lord, what did that mean about the Messiah? He must have already existed. He wasn't just talking about someone distant in the future, his descendant that he'd never heard of or never seen before. He was saying, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, present tense. He's recognizing Jesus is this riddle. How can the Messiah predate David so that David looks at him and says, my Lord, but also post-date him and be his son? And be his descendant. Jesus is saying, what gives? Explain this one for me. And do you know no one, no one did? No one could? Do you know Jesus himself doesn't even explain it? Notice. He doesn't say, hey hey guys, let me work out the theology of this for you. Do you know what he just says? He says, explain this one. Riddle me this. What's black and white and red all over? Your newspaper. No, I mean like this. Riddle me this. Now, do you know the resolution to that riddle? How can the Messiah be David's Lord predating him? And David's son post-dating him? Coming after him? Do you know there's a wonderful passage when we go to the end of our Bibles? The end of the book. Showing us a little bit more on this issue. Revelation 22 Jesus is speaking in verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the root of David, and I am the offspring of David. Now, what's the root of a tree? The root is what comes below the ground. What comes under the ground in the tree comes first, right? Would we all agree? The tree comes first. From the root. So, Jesus is saying, I am the root of David. I produced David. I predated him. And I am the offspring of David. I'm the fruit of David. I'm the fruit on the tree. Wait, how can you be the root and the fruit? It doesn't make sense, does it? But Jesus says, I am. Now, how do we understand that this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ? It is fulfilled in what we Christians call the Incarnation. The Incarnation, if you don't know that term, the Incarnation simply means this, that God became man. That is at the heart of what we believe. It is at the heart of what our Bible teaches, that God became man. That's why he can say, I am the root of David, because as God, I predated him. John chapter 1 says this, In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. That's a reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So he was existing with God, and he was God. Jesus is God. So therefore, he can be the root of David. Therefore, it was right for David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 1, to say, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Son of God, the Messiah, sit in this elevated place on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's the root of David. But he's also the offspring of David. How could he be the offspring of David? Because not only did he predate David as the Son of God, he postdated David as the Son of Man. When did he become the Son of David? He became the Son of David, we, we understand, as it was testified to Mary and to Joseph. In Mary's womb, God Himself implanted His son in her womb, a daughter of David. Joseph took him. Joseph being a descendant of David took him and raised him as his own son in the lineage of David. Jesus fulfilled the promise that a a son would come from David's lineage that would be the king to deliver his people from their bondage. And he, as the son of God, was the promised deliverer and Messiah who predated David, was not only his root, but was his offspring. You see, this riddle, the scribes were completely blinded to. They had no explanation. And notice here, Jesus does not even give the explanation, but he just points people back to think a little bit harder about the book, to look back into the Old Testament and study their presuppositions, to dive in and to think about it a little bit more. And friends, do you know actually that's a really good model for fathers? Do you know, fathers, you're not going to know every answer to the Bible's riddles. I certainly don't. I can't answer every question about this book that my children have. But do you know what you can do? You can point them back into the Bible. You can ask them questions about the Bible that say, you know what, you're going to have to go and think about this a little more, aren't you? You're going to put a little salt on their tongue that makes them thirsty to say, you know what, I'm going to dive back into this. You know what it says here? The common people heard him gladly. Dads, may our children hear us gladly because we take this book and don't pretend to know every one of its answers. But our children know, are going to know where to look because we're going to say, the answers are in here. And don't just listen to what I say, but dive in. And understand it for yourself. You see, this was the correction. These scribes could not truly understand or see who the Christ would be. They didn't truly understand the word of God as it was prophesying to this Lord who predated David himself. They were stuck in this mindset that they would need a military conqueror, one who would come and throw off the shackles of Rome, a son of David as a warrior king. And they missed the promise of the Old Testament that what they needed wasn't just a political deliverer, they needed a savior. They needed someone who would deliver them from their bondage to sin, not just the political nation of Israel. And friends, the same is true of you. The greatest deliverance that you and I need is not in any of our physical circumstances of life. It's not being rescued from a difficult relationship. It's not being rescued from a difficult job. It's not being rescued from a difficult national circumstance. The fundamental biblical diagnosis is that the greatest need we have is of a Savior to forgive us of our sins, to deliver us from the bondage to doing what is destructive to us and destructive to those who are around us. And my challenge to each of you this morning, friends, is what do you think about Jesus Christ? Do you see him as David's Lord, as your Lord, who has been exalted at his resurrection from the dead to God's right hand, who one day will come back to stand in judgment of me, of you, of the entire world? The Jesus who is Lord before whom everyone one day their knee will bow to him. Their tongue will confess publicly, openly that he is Lord. Oh, I pray this morning that everyone here would confess Jesus as Lord, as David's Lord, as their Lord, before it is too late. That is the correction but I want us to see briefly here what I'm going to call the condemnation. Do you notice what Jesus says in verse 38? He said unto them in his doctrine, he has just challenged the scribes on their understanding of who Christ was, and now he has a condemnation for them. He says to the people, beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Jesus stands now like a prosecutor and he is going to unmask These religious leaders who have been opposing him and have already in their own hearts rejected him. Will you look at how he condemns them? At what he says of them? The first thing he says of them is their pride. Do you notice that here in verse 38? He says they love to go in long clothing and they love salutations or greetings in the marketplaces. You just need to know a little bit of background here. Going back to the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 15, God had instituted that, the, uh, that, that he says, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue, and it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. God had given his people a direction even about how they were to dress as a reminder to remember God's commands and to follow them. And do you know what the Pharisees did? The Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day took this commandment to a kind of extreme. They loved these long and elegant robes with the tassels that were flowing from them. They loved the phylacteries that they would put on their arms and on their foreheads so that they would appear religious, devoted to the commandments of God. But it was all about pride. It was not about a message they were sending to God. It was about a message they were sending to everyone else. Do you know that's true even today, friends? Sometimes we are tending to think that the concept of modesty or of being modest might apply only to women in the way they dress. Not true. Modesty is is fundamentally about what I am saying to everyone else by how I dress, by how I speak, And by how I act. Do you know, friends, if I were to come up here in the pulpit and I were to be wearing a $10,000 Rolex watch and a $3,000 suit, and I were to be driving some expensive $100,000 car pulling into the parking lot this morning, you would understand that I would be communicating something to you. I would be communicating to you, I'm wealthy. We see that all around us, the way people dress. And you could just apply it to different cultures. Whether you're wearing Gucci, whether you're wearing Armani, whether you're wearing a $3,000 suit, whatever culture you're in, you're saying, you're saying something by how you dress, by how you act. And the question of modesty is, am I saying that it's really all about me, or am I saying that it's really all about him? What message am I sending by the way I act? by the way I live. And these Pharisees were fundamentally immodest because everything was about them. The robes that they wore were a message to people of their own spirituality. Notice, they loved the salutations in the marketplaces. In fact, Matthew chapter 23, I'll just footnote this for you. Mark is only giving us a snippet of the sermon that Jesus preached. Go read Matthew 23 for the full sermon you are going to see Jesus' most harsh denunciation and condemnation against these scribes. Mark is just giving us a little note of it. Do you know what these salutations were in the marketplaces? Jesus says in Matthew 23, they love to be called Rabbi, Rabbi. You know what Rabbi meant literally? Rabbi meant my great one. How would you like to be referred to as my great one everywhere you went, everywhere you went? My great one. Now, it may not be your great one, but how many of us like, honestly, to be recognized for what we think we're good at? For the talents and the gifts that we have? We like to be recognized for that. They love this. They love to be called that. My great one. Notice what he says. They loved the chief seats in the synagogues. You know what these were? The ones at the front. The ones, actually, these seats were the closest to the scrolls that would be read. And do you know what? These seats faced the audience. I actually thought about that today. I looked around at these three and I was like, uh-oh, we better turn them the other way, folks. We, we don't want to be like the rabbis here. We'll have to think about that. But what? They love to be seen sitting up front in a place of position and authority. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts. you know what those were? The wedding feasts. They love to be at the head table at the weddings They didn't need to go to that, you know, the little board where you have to check in what table? Am I at table 23 or am I at table 7? I don't know which one. They didn't even need to worry about that. They just went right up to table 1. They knew that's where they were going to be, and they loved it. Look at what comes next. Not only their pride, but their profit, which devour widows' houses. We don't know exactly what went on here, but Jesus knew. It appears that these scribes and these religious leaders were taking advantage of widows who had lost their husbands, perhaps as the managers of their financial estate, and in the process of appearing spiritual and appearing charitable and appearing benevolent, they were robbing them blind. And friends, then I think about those TV evangelists who are flying around private jets today. And on every one of their broadcasts, they're saying, if you give me your last mites, your last dollars and cents, God will richly bless you more than you can possibly imagine. And I say, how terrible. Devouring widows' houses. But not only that, look at their pretense. For a pretense, they make long prayers. Maybe these two things were connected. Maybe they were spouting off these long prayers in front of these, these, uh, these widows that were ready to be taken advantage of in their eyes. And they would have these long, glorious prayers about God and spouting off all the right words and all the right phrases, and it was hypocrisy. It was a pretense. They didn't mean it. You know what comes out from all of these words of Jesus' condemnation? It was about them. It was about their elevation. Their service was about boosting themselves and their profit and their prestige and their popularity. It actually wasn't about the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus says, These shall receive greater damnation. Jesus is saying, These ones aren't in the kingdom of heaven. These ones are on the outside of the kingdom. Yes, they're the great religious leaders. Yes, they are the ones who are being celebrated as the spiritual ones. But they are children of hell. And not only that, from their elevated position, they will receive an even greater punishment, an even greater judgment than the people who didn't know better. What a sobering word from Jesus, friends. Because frankly, I had to look in the mirror myself this week. It's one thing to look back at a first century context and say, well, I don't love long robes. I don't like people calling me my great one. I don't care about sitting in table number one at the wedding feast. And then we should start asking ourselves, wait, am I looking in the mirror? I had to confront myself with the fact this week that, you know, Peter, you care what people think. You care about how you're viewed by others. You care about being recognized. You care. And we should look at ourselves and ask, what about me? What kind of examples am I giving myself to in which, frankly, I do care about being recognized by others? What gifts are, are, are of mine that I exercise that, frankly, I do hope people notice? What things am I receiving my own profit from, focusing more on what I'm getting from the relationship rather than what I'm giving into it? How often are my prayers meant to be heard by others more than to be heard only by God himself? Friends, this is not a first century scribe problem. This is a 21st century me problem. And if we're going to hear the words of Jesus and this condemnation that he gives, may God give us the grace to see ourselves in the mirror. You see, that's why I want to move not just from the correction, not just from the condemnation, but ultimately, finally, to the contrast. I called this message condemnation in contrast with the scribes on trial because we go back to that fundamental question we started with. Who do we look like? Are we a chip off the old block? Well, which old block? These scribes were the ones looking for the Messiah to come, looking for the Christ to come. And did they look anything like him when he came? Well, notice... Jesus couldn't have cared less about the long flowing garments. He was happy for some to jostle around him and touch the hem of his garment and healing would be sent. He didn't care about the salutations or the greetings in the marketplace. He didn't didn't care about people coming up and obsequiously calling him rabbi, teacher, master. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me While while it is day. He said, whatever I hear from my father, that's what I speak. I'm not doing it for you folks. I'm doing it with an eye toward him. He was a person who by his selfless service demonstrated that it wasn't about what he could get from these people here on earth that the Son of God came. By his selfless service, it was all about what God wanted him to give to them. He didn't devour widows' houses. He invested in their well-being. He gave himself to anyone that would cross his paths. These scribes that were all in it for themselves simply couldn't recognize God in their midst because he looked so different than they were. They just couldn't simply see him as David's Lord. He did look nothing like them. And today, friends... As a father myself, I ask you and I ask all of our fathers here, who do you look like? Who do you look like? How often, friends, is it so easy for us as men and as fathers to be focused on what we can get out of our relationships? How often, honestly, is about our own pride, about our own vanity, about our own self-respect in the eyes of others? And how much instead does Jesus' example call us to humble ourselves, to serve those who are around us, to pour into our children with the word of God and the truth about who Jesus Christ is? You know, friends, there's, there's a point for all of us as dads. I idolized my dad at one point. You probably may have done that too. Maybe you're a dad, you're still in that stage where your kids think you walk on water. Maybe you're far past that stage, no matter what it is. Do you know what our children need? Our children need the humility of fathers who are going to readily admit to them, you know what, I don't know it all. I don't have it all under control. I'm not the one who's walking around here with my long robes flowing waiting for all my respect to flow in. What our children need from us is the humility that doesn't exalt me, but that exalts my Savior, that exalts Jesus, the Christ, that exalts the one who's not only the son of David, but the Lord of David, the one who's able to humble himself and ask forgiveness of his kids for falling short once again the one who's able to humble himself and admit that he doesn't know it all, that he's not the idol that is on anyone's shelf, that he needs the grace of God every bit as much as they do, and maybe more. That's what our kids need. That's what Jesus Christ came to show us of his humility, of his service of others, and it's everyone to be the character of those who acknowledge the lordship of Christ. Over their life. Yes, friends, I hope that you are a chip off the old block, not just you're in your DNA, but I hope that as fathers or wherever you are today, that above all things, you aren't going to look like those scribes, chasing after pride, chasing after profit, willing to give yourself to pretense. May we be the humble servants of the one who is the son of David and who is the Lord of David and us.